Well, the last two Sundays, uh, I'm sure you figured out, if you're paying attention at all, that um, I was preaching specific sermons that were part of the the uh, the China camp. And of course, every time we we gather, the ultimate purpose for our gathering is is the glory of God. The the saints are equipped to do the work of the ministry, and yet every Sunday we proclaim the gospel. You don't just need to hear the gospel as an unbeliever; you need to hear it as as believers. But it's hard not to be very intentional, very purposeful when you've got 20 unbelievers that you know are sitting here as part of your, your service, listening and taking notes. And that's, that's what we had. Um, and really for, for about two weeks, our entire church was engaged in, uh, in evangelism. I was doing my part or trying to do my part on Sunday morning by, by preaching, but, uh, the students that were here were uh, were primarily unbelievers who came for academic purposes, and it's a tremendous uh, opportunity that we had. Most of them had absolutely no understanding whatsoever of Christianity. Um, most of them, I would say, if not all, had never even opened a Bible uh, before. A number of them told me that this was this was when they came for this trip. It was the first time that they'd ever sat in a church service in their life. They'd heard of a Christian, but beyond that, that was pretty much, pretty much it. And so you, as a congregation, truly were the first Christians to, to show Christ to them. Um, they sat in classes taught by our people for uh, every day, uh, for those couple weeks. Um, they spent almost two weeks with with Timberlake uh, teenagers and adults who befriended them. We had people that, that cooked lunch for them. We had people that were just individual members that would go eat lunch whenever lunch was served, not just for a free meal, but for the purpose of, of getting to know them and, and sitting with them. They stayed with, uh, with church families uh, in, in their homes. Uh, we had them interview two Timberlake Baptist Church couples, uh, and in those in in those interviews, they uh, they witnessed to them. The two couples were Rick and Marilyn Boyer and Jim uh, and Mary Boyd Alley. Now, if you want to read something funny, you read the the testimonies or the interviews. These Chinese students trying to write in English. The, the life of Rick and Marilyn Boyer and Jim and Mary Boyd Alley. Now, that was, that was a sight to, to behold. Of course, as you probably know, the obvious, uh, the obvious uh, question that came up whenever, whenever uh, Rick and Marilyn told them they had 14 children, they, they thought that they misunderstood in English, just like most Americans do. But, um, but it was uh, when I read their testimonies, the gospel was there. Both of those couples communicated, yes, these are the circumstances of our lives, but the gospel was the, was the primary purpose. They, they came to Summer Recharge and, and our church picnic. They attended every church service that we had, and, and they did so without complaint and, and joy. Um, I mean, you may think of it this way. What would it be like to have someone who doesn't know anything about Jesus asked to come live with you for two weeks, to follow you around for two weeks, and just be open to anything that you would want to tell them and uh, what, what living the Christian life was, was like. And that's pretty much what you had. We had three students stay with us, and, and uh, Olivia served in the, 
in the camp over there. I wish I had a video that I could show you of the, of the farewell banquet to hear the statements of the, of the Chinese as they were, as they were leaving. Um, the statements they made about you and the statements that they made about, about our God. Um, one young man who, uh, who stayed with us professed faith in Christ. Um, another went home singing gospel songs that he memorized. All went with Bibles. The group leader told, uh, told the group at the farewell banquet that she, she was not a religious person. In fact, she said, she, I don't really know a whole lot about God, but, but after being here, she said, I learned much about the Bible and, and I want to know more about, about Christ. Those are just the things that we know that happen, and I'm sure plenty of others who were part of the, of the camp uh, could tell us things that, that took place. And I guess it just goes to show you, you never know what God will use. The, the high school student who, uh, who made a profession said he'd been listening to the sermons and, and reading, but, but what caused him to, to want to consider Christ was, uh, had to do with Loring Stevens' funeral. Um, they didn't attend the funeral, but as I was leaving one morning for, for her service, I had my suit on, which was abnormal. Usually when I got up, I, I didn't have a tie on. And asked, he asked me why I was, was dressed up, and I told him that one of our long-term members had, had died, and I was, I was going to her funeral. And, and he kind of looked at me sad or looked at me puzzled, and I, I said it was, a, it was a celebration. It's a celebration of her life and the fact that she'd gone to heaven. And I said, only Christians can celebrate death because uh, we go to be with a God who conquered sin and death. And, and he later that week told Pastor Stephen that, that that's one of the things that brought it all together for him. Uh, death to him, he said, was something to fear and it was the end. But for Christians, he said it's not because, because of Jesus and he wanted that reality too. And last week we saw that was true because God, not because of us, but because God makes dead sinners into, into living saints. In fact, the Apostle Paul prayed that we would understand exactly what that Chinese student said he understood. He prayed that we would, we would grasp three things in, in Ephesians. And that's not where we're going, but there's a verse that's going to come up that will show you exactly what he prayed, which is really what that, what that Chinese student was, was indicating. The Apostle Paul prays that believers would understand what is the hope of God's calling, what's the wealth of his inheritance, the number two there, what are the riches of his glory in the inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. Now, I want you to notice that that... The Apostle Paul doesn't pray that we'll have God's hope or that we'll have God's inheritance or power. He prays that we would understand what we already have. He prays that we would understand what the light bulb that came on for that, for that Chinese student. We are God's inheritance in Christ. And because of that, we're precious to God. And Psalm 116 has been on my heart ever since Monday. 
And so I want you to open your Bibles there. We applied Psalm 116 to on Monday to Lorene, but I'm actually going to preach the entire passage to you this, this morning. It might not be something that you've thought about, but the Bible tells us that we are precious to God. And you let that sink in, because I think it's easy to just let it just hit and roll along. We are precious to God. What comes to your mind whenever you hear that you are precious to the Lord? Well, when I hear the word precious, I think Lord of the Rings. I think, my precious, you know. I think of Gollum. Unbelievers find sin precious. They don't want to turn loose of their sins. I mean, that's the picture that Tolkien had of the ring. It was, it was, it was, Gollum was in bondage. He loved it and he hated it all at the same time, just like your sin. If you stay in sin long enough, you will find that you can't turn loose of it. You're a slave to it. You love it, but you also hate it because of what it does to you. And while sin is precious to, to sinners, you we are precious to God. What comes to your mind when you think about you're precious to the Lord? There's a story told of a man who loved old books, and he met an acquaintance who had just thrown away a Bible that had been stored in the attic of his, of his home, a home that had been in his family for generations. And the man said, I couldn't read it. Somebody named Guten something had printed it. And the book lover was listening, and in horror, he said, Gutenberg? Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. He said, that that Bible was one of the first books ever printed. I mean, there was a copy just sold for over $2 million. And his friend was completely unimpressed, and he said, mine wouldn't have brought a dollar. Some fellow named Martin Luther had scribbled all over it in German. (laughs) That man didn't know the value (laughs) of what he had. But the book lover did, didn't he? The book lover was horrified. Gutenberg Bible with German scribbled all over it from a guy named Martin Luther. He knew exactly who Gutenberg was and who Luther was and the value of that, of that, that book. And, and I would say to you, you might be like the old man when it comes to your, old, to your life. You might, you might be like the man who just threw the Bible away thinking it was worthless. And if you are, you might just waste your life or throw it away on trivial things. But, well, you might not know how much value God places on your life. The lover of your soul knows exactly how precious you are in His sight. And knowing how precious you are to God will change the way you live. Knowing how precious you are to God doesn't lift you up and say, wow, I am precious to God, look at me. It's not the way that it works in the Christian life. When you realize how precious you are to God in light of what you already know about yourself, it will lead you to love and praise and then ultimately serve Him. So if you're not there, open to Psalm 116. And the structure of the, of the psalm you can see in you can see in this slide that you're bringing up right now, there's, it really has three parts. Psalm 116 has a saint's prayer, verses 1 through 4. It's all prayer. It's all about prayer. 
Verses 5 through 11, there's the saint's praise. He moves from prayer into praise and he begins to speak about who God is and who he is in light of that and, and he praises God, praises God for what he does. And then he ends the whole psalm focusing on our promises, the saints, the saints' promise. So I want to show you this morning, realizing how precious you are to God will, will do three things in your life. It will intensify your love through prayer. It will inform your praise by faith. And it will increase your service because of His grace. Those are the three points of the sermon coming from those three sections of the outline. Realizing how precious you are to God will intensify your love. And that will come through prayer. It will inform your praise by faith. The level of what you believe about God will be equal to the level in which you praise God. And then in the end, it will increase your, your service because of His grace. Let's look at the psalm. We'll begin with realizing how precious you are. will intensify your love through prayer. Look at verse 1. It says, I love the Lord because He's heard my voice and my supplications, because He's inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. The pangs of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore You. I plead with You. Deliver my soul. Verses 1-4 through records a a saint's prayer when, when that saint was facing a great enemy. Now, we're not told specifically this enemy was, but, but clearly it was pretty bad. Look at verse 3. It says, The pangs of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Whatever is going on in the psalmist's life, and we're not told who wrote this psalm. We know ultimately the Holy Spirit superintended over, a, over an author or a writer, but this is not a psalm of David. We don't know who wrote the psalm. But whatever is going on in this psalmist's life, is it, it's, it's serious. It could bring about death. He's either in despair for his life or he's facing the end of, of, of his life. And because of that, this, this psalm is often used in, in funerals. It goes on to say that God rejoices. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But this is actually a song. As I said on Monday, Jesus sang it. Following the Passover, you know, the Bible says that, that Jesus... Uh, and his disciples, before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the Lord's Supper, it says they sang a hymn. That's one of the reasons we sing a hymn at the end of the Lord's Supper. And Psalm 116, this psalm that you're reading, is the, is the song that Jesus and his disciples sang. The song the Lord sang before he went to the cross is one that declares we are precious to God. And then Jesus went to the cross and proved it. It's pretty significant. I mean, just even that nugget alone makes me love Psalm 116. No, the Lord sang it, and that what He was thinking about was how precious I was and you are, and then He went and proved that preciousness. But, but this psalm has power to live, not just, not just die. I want you to pay attention to the first five words. Look at verse 1. I love Yahweh because... 
You see those words? I love the Lord because... And he tells us why. He's heard my voice in supplication, number one, because he's inclined his ear to me, number two. Therefore, he says, I will call upon him as long as, as I live. Now, now, follow that progression. I love God because he hears me when I call. Therefore, I will call upon him my whole life. And he basically says here, answered prayer intensifies his love for God. He doesn't mean the reason that he loved God is because that God bailed him out of all of his trouble. What's he saying? He's saying, I love the Lord because God cares about me. I love the Lord because God watches over me. I love the Lord because He heard my voice and my supplications. Because He inclined His ear toward me. Because His ear is bent toward me. And because of that, because he's experienced that in life, because he's cried out to the Lord and God has heard him, because he cried out to the Lord and God had intervened, because because he knows that God's ear is turned toward him to to the faintest whisper of a saint's heart, that intensified his his love for God. Whenever you think about answered prayer, is that what happens in your heart? Do you think about answered prayer? When you pray, I know you pray, but when you pray, do you think much about that prayer after you pray? Some people keep a journal of prayers and then answered prayers. I think usually we, we do that, it's easier to do that with bigger things, right? I mean, you're praying for a job, you're praying for this circumstance, you're praying for this family difficulty, whatever it is, and you can go back and say, there, God answered that prayer because it's very evident. But that's not only what the psalmist is talking about here. He's talking about that his love for God intensifies as he prays on a daily basis, on a regular basis, and he is reminded how the Lord intervenes, how the Lord hears, because it's proof that God loves him. Answer prayer is proof that you are precious to God. I mean, why would God listen to you? Because you're precious to him. And there are times when we really need to hear from, from God. And deepened his love for him. James Gilmore was a missionary to Mongolia. And he was once asked to treat some wounded soldiers. And, and he wasn't a doctor. He did have some knowledge of first aid. So, so he couldn't refuse the request. He dressed the wounds of two men. But a third had a badly broken thigh bone. The missionary had no idea what to do for such an injury. So kneeling beside the man, he, he asked the Lord for help. He didn't know how God would answer his prayers. He's out in the middle of nowhere. No x-ray, no anything. If he had an x-ray, he really wouldn't know what to do. He didn't know how God would answer his prayers, but he was confident that his need would be supplied. Couldn't find any books on physiology in the primitive hospital. No doctor arrived in the complicate matter. A crowd of beggars had begun to gather asking for money, and he was deeply concerned about his patient, and yet his heart went out to the to the beggars, and he hurriedly gave them a small gift, plus a few kind words of spiritual admonition. And a moment later, he stared in amazement at one weary beggar who had remained behind. The half-starved fellow was little more than a living skeleton. 
And the missionary suddenly realized that the Lord had brought him a walking lesson in anatomy. And he asked the elderly man if he might examine him. And after carefully tracing the femur bone with his fingers, this emaciated man, he learned how to treat the soldier's broken leg and he returned to the patient and was able to set the fracture. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you hear a story like that, you say God is awesome. Years afterwards, Gilmer often related how God had provided him with a strange and yet sufficient response to his earnest prayer. When we raise our petitions, we too can be certain that the Lord will help us, even though the answer may come by the way of those who who have no power. I mean, why does he say when you raise your petitions to the Lord, you can be certain that the Lord will help us? It's because you're precious to Him. And the fact that when the Lord comes through in big moments like this and small moments of, of every part of the day, it intensifies your, your love. It causes your heart to be filled with love for God. Look at how he ends this section in verse 4. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. This love led him to call out to God in this significant circumstance. An answered prayer intensifies our love for God because we learn that He cares through those everyday events. Does God answer your prayers? Do you think about that often? As I said, I'm sure you pray, but how often do you think about the prayer after you pray it? Or is it just part of your your day? I want to encourage you this morning, if you become routine in prayer, I want you to be intentional and think whenever you pray about what you're praying. And then I want you to think throughout the day about how God heard you and how He is is answering you. Because whenever you do, it will intensify your love for God. And you will see that you truly are precious to the Lord. Is your heart tempted to think, why would God answer me? Look at my life. I mean, I blew it again. I'm, I'm such a failure. Is that the normal way that you think? That's not the way the psalmist here says for you to think. You are precious to God. And because of that, He, he listens. And because He listens... He answered and answers, and all of that is because of who He is. Realizing how precious you are to God will not just intensify your, your love through prayer, but it will inform your praise by faith. Look at verse 5. It was down through verse 11. Gracious is the Lord. Righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. Yahweh preserves the simple. I was brought low. He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He's talking to Himself. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Then he means in verse 11, you can't find your hope in human beings, but you surely can in God because of who God is. He turns from prayer to praise. 
He says God, in verse 5, is gracious, He's righteous, and He's merciful. And look at what He says about Himself in verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. He's simple and low. There's the proper perspective of God and man. The preciousness of the saint to God doesn't lift this saint up in pride because you're precious to the Lord because of who He is, not because of who you are. We are simple and low. God is gracious. He's dispensing favor. Unearned, unmerited, unattracted favor. He's righteous. He acts in justice and righteousness in keeping His covenant. He he doesn't just overlook your sin, He deals with your sin. And He does it because He's compassionate. He's merciful. does it out of His love. In verse 6, He clearly says, there's nothing in me that would, that would cause God to be gracious, righteous, and merciful. God is gracious. He is righteous. He is merciful. In this covenant, God, Yahweh, the Lord, preserves the simple... Now pay attention to what he does here. These three attributes govern the Lord's response to his children in their time of need. God is very compassionate. You can see the compassion of God in Jesus whenever he, he fed people, he healed people. But you ever pay attention? Did you ever think, why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? Jesus didn't heal everybody, Jesus didn't feed everybody. He, his heart went out. He wept at the death of, of Lazarus. But he didn't do it for, for everyone. Why? Well, not because he wasn't gracious. My point is, it wasn't specifically their need that attracted God. It was it attracted Jesus to do those things. Jesus did those things because of who he was. And these three attributes govern the Lord's response to His children in their time of need. The reason that God answers your prayers is because God is gracious, because He's righteous, and because He is merciful. It's because of who He is. He loves you because He is love. It's not because you're lovable or because you do anything to attract His love. He loves because He is love. His love for God is intensified because God answered his prayer, and God answered his prayer because God is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. And so he praised him. Praised him for, for who he was. Let's praise. You hear the term all the time. Praise. You praise your children. You praise your wife, your spouse. What does it mean to praise God? When you praise someone, you tell of their worth. Praise is important. You should praise people around you. You shouldn't do it for any reason. As you know, I could get up on a soapbox, but we have in our society the whole idea that you get rewarded, you get a trophy, you get praised for nothing. We don't have winners and losers. There's no competition because we don't want anybody's feelings to get hurt. Praise is directly tied to the worth of an individual. And God does say praise is good for those who are worthy of that, of that praise. And when you praise someone, you tell of their worth. You speak of their qualities. And that's what we do when we praise God. But you must know Him to praise Him. And the psalmist clearly does. 
John Wesley, whenever he was about 21, as an unsaved man attending Oxford University, he was, he was very gifted, he had, he had a keen mind, he had good looks, and he knew it too. And he was a snob, really, he was sarcastic. And one night while speaking with a, with a porter, a guy who, who opened the door for, for anybody who came in, he discovered that this poor fellow only had one coat, and he lived in such impoverished conditions that he didn't even have a bed. And yet he was unusually, he was an unusually happy person, filled with gratitude to God. Wesley, being immature and thoughtless, joked about the man's misfortunes. He said, what else do you thank God for? He said with a touch of, of sarcasm. Thank God for only having one coat and no place to, no place to sleep. And the doorkeeper just smiled and the spirit of meekness replied with joy. I thank Him that, that He has given me my life and being. That He's given me a heart to love Him. And above all, a constant desire to serve Him. Even opening the door for people who come. And I might have been tempted to say even opening the door for people who come like you. But it had an effect on Wesley. Deeply moved, Wesley recognized that this man knew the meaning of true thankfulness. And and many years later, in 1791, when Wesley lay on his deathbed at the age of 88, those who gathered around him realized how well he'd learned the lesson of praising God in every circumstance. And despite Wesley's extreme weakness, he began singing the hymn, I will praise my Maker while I breath. What had an impact on Wesley was this contrast. The circumstances of the doorkeeper, in Wesley's mind, shouldn't have had a song of praise on his heart. But the doorkeeper was full of praise because of who God was and he knew the Lord. You see, it's not your circumstances that that informs your praise, but your faith. And it's faith. Because when you look around and you see pangs of death surrounding you, pangs of Sheol laying hold of you, trouble and sorrow, without faith, you don't praise. You worry and fret and say, what am I going to do? Look at my circumstances. Everything's falling down around my ears. Or you say, I only have one coat, and I don't even have a bed to lay in or sleep in. But by faith, by knowing who God is, and you think about what God has done in spite of being simple and, and low, your mouth is filled with praise. You, you forget about the circumstances and you put your eyes on, on Him. What we believe about God is our fuel for praise. And how much we believe about who God says He is will determine how much you praise Him. Look at how he expresses this praise. Look at verse 7. He starts to talk to himself. Return to your rest, O my soul. The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from, from falling. The Lord had done those things. He begins to praise him. Verse 10 The Apostle Paul illustrates 
where he talks about walking by faith and, and not by sight. It's the Second Corinthians chapter four, verse thirteen. He says, Second Corinthians four thirteen. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose hearts. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed Day by day. That's a quote of verse 10 from this psalm. I believe, therefore, spoke. We also believe, therefore, we speak. I mean, Paul's talking about walking by faith and not by sight. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's circumstances are pretty bad, just like the psalmist here. And yet, he says, I believed, therefore, I spoke. What I believed about God, my faith in who God was, informs my mouth and my praise. It's not my circumstances. Do you see that? That's walking by faith and not by sight, because sight says it's bad. Faith says God is gracious, and God is righteous, and God is compassionate. Faith survives even in the midst of pressures and pains of disillusionment and disaster and disease and dread, which is why you can praise God in the... In the storm, I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. And we learn the most about God through His, through His grace, His gracious promises. Let's look at number three. What we're realizing, that you are more precious than a Gutenberg Bible with Martin Luther's German written in it. Realizing how precious you are to God will increase your service because of His grace. If you realize how precious you are to God, it will intensify your love because you begin to pray with the understanding that you're precious in God's sight and He hears you and He answers in the big things and in the little things. And it will inform your praise because of faith. You believe, therefore, you'll speak regardless of what's going on in your life. And both of those things together will increase your service. Because you realize it's all grace. It's all grace. Look at verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits towards me? I will take up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, that verse that we all love. O Lord, I am your slave. I am your servant. I am your servant, literally slave. The son of your maidservant, you have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows, second time he said that, to Yahweh now in the presence of all of His peoples, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, Praise the Lord. He moves from prayer to praise, leads him to consider grace. What shall I render to the Lord? It's a rhetorical question. It's a question that expects an obvious answer. The obvious answer, what shall I render to the Lord, is 
You know, what can I, what can I give the Lord? What can I repay the Lord? The obvious answer is you, you can't ever repay the Lord. You tried to do it? I did. When I was first saved, unintentionally, I think I tried to repay God in some ways. I know I couldn't. It was more of a performance-based Christianity. God was pleased with me as long as I performed. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. He's saying, what shall I render to the Lord? You can render anything to the Lord. Can you ever repay the Lord? As you think about who God is and what He's done for you and your love increases for Him, you, you think, what can, I, what can I give God in return for all of His benefits towards me? And listen to the answer in verse 13. I will take up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of His people. I will take up the cup of of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh in the presence of, of all of His people. Since Thanksgiving is given... Publicly in the temple, this, this is not a cup of Passover meal, because that would have been private in the house. He says in verse 19, he's doing it in the Lord's house, in the midst of Jerusalem. He's doing it in the temple. It's where he's taking up this cup of salvation. It's most likely the drink offering. It's associated with the morning and the evening sacrifices, or the feast of first fruits. Taking the cup of Salvation is service God's people. Service of God's people to their covenant God. I mean, what, what's Israel's response to their, to their God? I mean, they weren't serving Him. They didn't bring their sacrifices in order to be right with the Lord. They were right with the Lord because of God's grace, because they're His people. But what does that do in your heart? You're not saved by serving God. But because you are saved, because you know who you are and what God has done for you, what does that do in your heart? You can't repay the Lord, but where does your heart go? I just want to serve Him. I just want to serve Him. I just want to serve Him. I just want to serve you. I want to serve other people for you. I want to, I want to tell other people about you. I want, to, I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good employee. I want to be a good church member. I want to, I just, I want to serve you. That's, that's what he's saying here. I can't repay the Lord. There's nothing I can do to ever repay the Lord, but, but I will serve Him. And I'll serve Him all of the days of my life. That's what He's saying. Look at verse 16. Oh, Yahweh, truly, I am your servant. It's literally, I am your slave. It's a strong word. It's not used a lot that way in the Old Testament. Verse 15, he says, you're precious to God. Still, Lord, truly, I'm your slave. Whatever you want from me, I am yours, is what he's saying. Twice he says it. Bill Barrick says that the statement emphasizes the psalmist's humble submission and dependence upon his or her sovereign Lord. And then in verse 17, he goes right back to why he serves God. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the, the, the name of the Lord. It's not because he's repaying him or earning his way to heaven, but because 
God has loosed His his bonds. End of verse 16. I'm your slave, I'm your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed no bonds. Graham Scruggie said, A saint is a servant, and he or she is never more saintly than when they are serving. When you think about being saintly, what do you think? What picture comes to your mind? Black robe? A little white collar? I hope not. Standing praying with a booming deep voice that everybody wants to listen to? Preaching? The evidence of saintly, your Scroge said that a saint is a servant. And you're never more saintly than when you're serving. A.T. Pearson said, Service, comprehensively speaking, is doing the will of God. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father. He's showing the fruit of a saved life, is service. The more you love Him, the more you praise Him, and the more you love Him and praise Him, the more you will find you want to just give your life away to Him and to other people. How's your service? I want to bring up this, close at this last quote from A.T. Pearson. It's about service. The supreme test of service, Pearson said, is for whom am I doing this? Why do you serve? Why do you do what you do? Routine? Because you think that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian? Because you have to? Because you let other people down? Because you like the praise of men? You get something back from it? The supreme test of service... The psalmist says, I am your slave. I am your slave. The supreme test of whether you're truly doing that is is for whom do you serve. Much that we call service, Pearson said to Christ, is not such at all. If we are doing this for Christ, we shall not care for human reward or even recognition. And so he says our work, our service must be tested by these Three propositions. If it's true service, it will meet these three statements. Is it work from God? Is it work for God? And is it work with God? Is it work from God? Is it given from Him for us to do? Is it for God? Finding in Him its secret of power and is it with God was only a part of His work in which we engage as co-workers with Him. Well, if you, if you bypass the first statement there, then you can do some hard examination on those last three propositions. But frankly, my heart got stuck on the first one. The supreme test of true service. I could stop and ask myself the first question, for whom am I doing this? If you can say I'm doing this for the Lord, then probe deeper with those next three statements. 
possible to be busy, but never really be in service to the Lord. Are you serving God? Number one, are you serving? Would you say, as you stand back and look at your life, it's, it's, it's filled with service? Do you see that being a saint of God is equated to serving God? Do you find that others are at the center of your life because God is sitting on the throne of your heart? Do you serve? And if you do serve, maybe you do. Praise God for you. Are you doing it for Him? Why do you serve? Are you serving God out of genuine love? Is it work from God, for God, and with God? And if you, if you answer to the negative of either one of those, those questions, I would just say, why not start today? Why not say, say God, I am, I am not much. I am lowly and simple, but who I am, here I am. Please make me into what I need to be. And use me. Years ago, the Salvation Army was holding an international convention and, and the founder, William Booth, couldn't attend because of physical weakness. He was too weak to attend. He was too weak to speak. And so they asked him if he could cable his message to the convention. Which he said, yes. And when they got his convention message... It was one word. Only one word. And the word was others. Are you others minded? Jesus was. Whenever he left the Lord's table, after acknowledging that one of his disciples would betray him and all of them would flee, he's singing this song. How precious you are in his sight. And then he goes and proves how precious you were to him by dying on a cross. 